when the movie came out, the poster didn't even have him on it originally. The poster for the film, I'll throw it online on the YouTube version. It's just a poster of the the tower, Nakatomi Tower, and that's it. And there's like an explosion at the top, and it's like Die Hard. And you don't even see Bruce Willis's name until like the fine print credits on the bottom. But then, because it became such a huge hit and audiences loved Bruce Willis's character, they redid the poster while the movie was still in released in theaters, and they redid a poster with Bruce Willis's face like gigantic on the poster right next to the tower. So they, the studio, even though they hired Bruce Willis and obviously thought he was right for the role, they weren't like pushing like, oh, this is Bruce Willis, this is like a new star. They were more like, oh, this is like a great action movie you think you'll like. Happy holidays, everyone. Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James. We're going to do our favorite Christmas movie of all time. Well, it's my favorite Christmas movie. Mine I don't too. know if it is yours. Yeah. We're doing Die Hard. This was released in 1988, directed by John McTiernan on IMDb. It's at 8.2. It's currently the number 128th best film of all time, according to the IMDb user rating list. Ron Tomatoes, it's 94% audience and critic score. This film had four Oscar nominations, including Best Sound, Best Sound Effects. I believe it's now one category for yeah. sound. Best Editing, Best Visual Effects. And it lost almost all of those to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is kind of lame. Well, no, that's a great movie. It's pretty good, yeah. but it's not Die Hard. That was a visually stunning movie. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was ahead of its time for sure. Yeah. yeah. But I think get that, off, get off of get, get, who's eating Robert, Roger Rabbit. Who's eating Robert, I mean, Roger Rabbit? <laughs> I just called. don't love that movie. Yeah. But um, I think Die Hard is possibly the greatest action movie of all time. It's up there, and you know there's been a debate about whether it is a Christmas movie or not. But 20th Century Fox actually came out recently and said, 100% confirmed this is a Christmas movie, and now that makes the top of the list because I think there's debate about Nightmare Before Christmas. Although I think Nightmare can be both Halloween and Christmas. I, I think it works for it's both a hybrid. holidays. Whereas, like, if you want to take just a pure movie that is just purely about Christmas, I would say Elf is number one. Yeah, but, I mean, I want to actually talk about that in a little bit. Okay. We'll get into what makes Die Hard a Christmas movie because I made an entire list. I cannot wait it. to see this list. But I think in terms of the 20th century, Die Hard, I think it might be the best action movie of that century. Maybe this century there's been something better. I'm not sure. Because, um, I mean, when you make the list of best action films, I, I would even put, like, The Raid up there for all-time greatest action oh, films. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I think that Die Hard was incredibly groundbreaking action it's very well paced really well edited awesome um screenplay as well as a ton of improvisation to give it like a bunch of realism and, and like soul to the script as well and one of the most all-time greatest action heroes of all time and john mcclain yeah and john mctiernan is a really underrated director he's made some of the best action movies of all time you know he made predator as well hunt for red october is really fantastic and he did the third die hard which i think is really awesome almost as good as the first one but like i think you i think it could be the greatest action movie of all time. Because, and the, I think the main reason why is because of John McClane. Because, you know, this is coming off of like Schwarzenegger, Stallone. They were really growing in the industry. Their movies, like big time action movies were the thing of the 80s and early 90s. And then, you know, the thing with John McClane is he just looks like a normal guy. And he acts like a normal guy. He's not like some unbeatable, bulletproof, superhero-like Biceps the size of your head. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't look like he's just juiced out of his mind. John McClane's relatability is what makes this movie work and makes it feel like, hey, I know this guy, or or it makes you feel like, hey, I'm like this guy. He reminds me of myself or reminds me of like people I know, or he's just he's just a cop. And I think that putting just a normal guy in this situation 
is why it works so well. And not just a normal guy, a very flawed individual. Yeah. John McClane has a lot of character flaws, especially like being very stubborn. I mean, the first time he sees his so wife, stubborn. within five minutes, he starts an argument to go back and keep fighting about their the last fight they had several months before. So he's just like an arrogant, stubborn guy. But, you know, he ends up being an incredible hero. And that's why I love John McClane so much, because of all those different factors. Mm-hmm. And before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast, where you get awesome perks like our podcast schedule for upcoming episodes, personalized videos, Patreon shoutouts on the show, which we will be doing in the next episode for top tier patrons, and then weekly bonus episodes every Wednesday, which posts on Patreon that only patrons have access to. We also just launched our podcast masterclass online course. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast and doesn't know how, or wants to improve their current podcast, our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all of the secrets behind the scenes of our show and everything we do on a daily basis over the last year and a half to get to where we are right now. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go to our website, raidersoflostpodcast.com. You can find the masterclass there right on the homepage. You can also check out all of our merch, our custom movie posters. Follow, subscribe, hit the notification bells wherever you're listening or watching. And thank you so much for tuning in around the world. And we'll, let's get back into our holiday special on Die Hard. Oh, yeah. And it is, I think it's the best Christmas movie ever made. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what makes it a Christmas movie? Absolutely. All right. So let's I know hear this list. there's a big debate about, oh, it's Christmas movie or it's not. Personally, in my life, I like to have a good time as much as possible. So uh, that makes Die Hard. James, in fact, good time, Devin. That means <laughs> that means that Die Hard is in fact a Christmas movie. First, it's on Christmas Eve. That's a set. Christmas mm-hmm. Eve, night before Christmas, and it eventually becomes Christmas because it all happens throughout the middle of the night. There are tons of Christmas decorations, obviously, throughout the entire film. Christmas trees, there are several of them. I think there are over like 20 just shots of just Christmas decorations just in the film, let alone everything that people people are wearing and all that stuff. Yeah, music. It takes place during a holiday party for this company, although they're also celebrating closing a big deal, of course, and the company having the best year it's ever had. So there, you know, there are other um, reasons why they're celebrating, but it takes place during this holiday Christmas party. Um, there are several Christmas songs in the film, including Winter Wonderland, Let It Snow, Christmas and Hollis, and Ode to Joy. Uh, John's wife name, wife's name is Holly, which could be a <laughs> reference to Christmas or not, if you read into I think, it. I think you're stretching We're, with that one. No, man. I'm, I, I'm I deep in the rabbit hole. I think hole. you're stretching. <laughs> <laughs> There's Santa Claus in the movie, so a character actually dresses up like Santa, kind of. Hmm. So after John kills Tony, he puts a Santa hat on him. Writes on his shirt, ho, 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 now Now I have have a machine gun. gun. Super Christmassy. (laughs) (laughs) Merry Christmas is said several times throughout the film, including Theo declaring Merry Christmas when the vault opens, and John says it to Argyle at the end of the film, meaning it's Christmas Day now. Mm -hmm. There are so many miracles that happen in this film for both villains and heroes. Hans also tells Theo that it is the season of miracles when he's talking about the final vault lock opening eventually. Um, Argyle, the limo driver, says one of the final lines of the film is, if this is their idea of Christmas, I've got to be here for New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what else we have. Um, viewership. So according to Dish Network in 2017, 1.3, Amer- um, 1.3 million Americans watched Die Hard on Christmas Eve in 2016, which beat out movies like Home Alone, Miracle on 34th Street, and The Santa Claus. Wow. So tons, That's crazy. tons of viewership on Christmas Eve. Let's see what else. Um, another reference to Santa Claus, Holly, when she's talking to her daughter on the phone, 
when her daughter asks if daddy's coming home for Christmas, she tells her she'll see what Santa and her can do with bringing daddy home. She also referenced not snooping for presents before saying, give me, give the phone to Paulina. And then there's snow at the end of the movie. Well, kind of. It's actually debris and falling ash from the explosions of the of the building, but it looks like snow yeah, in Los Angeles. So that's a miracle. <laughs> so basically, that's my list of everything, all the reasons why and, it's a Christmas movie. And the movie is about family. Yeah, it ends with it's, it's the main theme is family. Yeah, you know, John McClane coming back to his family. It's a Christmas movie. Like because so many Christmas movies are about you know reuniting with family or coming home for the holidays. So I think that it definitely. Uh, is the ultimate Christmas movie. Yeah, I mean, I know people have their specific criteria of what makes a holiday film or a Christmas film. It has to be, like, good nature. Oh, no, you could say John even wraps a present, the gun he tapes to yeah, his so, back. Yeah, so actually there are several presents in the film, including him taping the gun to his back and, and Al buying all the Twinkies that he yeah. says are for his wife, which yeah. we can all assume are actually for him, probably. No, Hol- she's pregnant, man. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then Holly getting the Rolex from... Um, the company as a present. Mm-hmm. The FBI gifts Hans Gruber with access to the Nakatomi vault after shutting down the local power grid. So all sorts of presents happen throughout the film. That's a great list. Yeah, thanks, man. I like that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Great job. And actually, did you know that Die Hard's based on a book? Yeah, I do know. It's, and did you know that it's a sequel to a, a book that in which Frank Sinatra starred in the original film, and he was actually approached to star in Die Hard because it's a sequel to the other story that same character same character not john mcclain but someone else in the book i believe or maybe it was the character i think they changed the the name but um this was joe leland in the book okay so he played joe leland in the original film in the six in the 50s but he was like 73 by the time they made die hard so he turned it down but that was originally like the same franchise. Gotcha. So the the book is actually called Nothing Lasts Forever it, yeah. by Roderick Thorpe. And it's about a retired NYPD detective, Joe Leland, visiting the 40-story it, office yeah. headquarters of the Klaxon Oil Corporation in Los Angeles on Christmas Eve, where his daughter, Stephanie Leland Gennaro, works. While he's waiting for his daughter's Christmas party to end, a, gr- a group of German autumn-era terrorists take over the skyscraper. The gang is led by brutal Anton Little Tony the Red. Gruber, and so actually he knew him. So you can see how, uh, but also Police Sergeant Al Powell is also outside and they're communicating. Mm-hmm. So you can see how they adapted the book into the film version for a more interesting script and more relatable. I think that's yeah. I, I so like changing it. the daughter to the wife, yeah, the, the estranged wife, where she's you know. I feel like they improved it. Yeah, it for sounds sure. like they improved the story. I think and, so too. And Bruce Willis, when it came out, he was such an unknown actor in terms of the action world. He had a successful show called Moonlight, and he was with starring with um, Sybil Shepherd, which was a comedy series, and it was one of the biggest hits on TV. But he was basically playing for laughs the whole time, and so he had a couple of roles too, like yeah. that movie where he's a singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had never done anything even remotely close to action, yeah. so no one looked at him that way. When the movie came out, the poster didn't even have him on it originally. The poster for the film, I'll throw it online on the YouTube version. It's just a poster of the the tower, Nakatomi Tower. And that's it. And there's like an explosion at the top, and it's like die hard. And you don't even see Bruce Willis's name until like the fine print credits on the bottom. But then, because it became such a huge hit, and audiences loved Bruce Willis's character, they redid the poster while the movie was still in released in theaters. And they redid a poster with Bruce Willis's face like gigantic on the poster right next to the tower. So they, the studio, even though they hired Bruce Willis and obviously thought he was right for the role. 
they weren't like pushing like, oh, this is Bruce Willis. This is like a new star. They were more like, oh, this is like a great action movie you think you'll like. Yeah, and it's actually ironic because he received a then unheard of $5 million fee to play John McClane, which was approved by Fox president Rupert Murdoch at the time. And Great decision. Yeah, there's a ton of actually fun facts about John McClane and Bruce Willis. So the costume department had 17 undershirts in various stages of degradation on hand for Bruce Willis during the film because throughout the entire film, it just goes from just the white undershirt tank top to it's literally brown and black and covered in blood and soot. <laughs> um, he actually donated... Bruce Willis donated John McClane's undershirt to the Smithsonian Museum in 2007, which is really cool. Um, oh, I got something. Clint Eastwood actually owned the rights to the novel. Did he really? For a couple of decades, and he planned to star in it in the early 1980s. It never worked out, and then I think he sold the rights to the novel. So he actually had it in production for a while. That's really cool. Dyer was actually selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2017 for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. <laughs> no way. People love this movie. That's why. You know, I, I think one of my favorite parts about this entire film is, yes, it's this great, like, modern, well, in the, 80, in the 80s, modern action movie, but it feels so much like a Western or like a gunslinger film, you know? It feels like a classic Western at times. So many references, obviously, yeah. to John Wayne, yeah. to Roy Rogers. John McClane is a cowboy. Hans Gruber calls him Mr. Cowboy several times. Uh, we have so many references to westerns with the great shootouts, like on the top of the skyscraper. In the inside of the skyscraper, we have duels. The final duel at the end too, with John, and he, he blows the gun, the the, yeah, the yeah, barrel after he shoots, after he shoots yeah. them both. Um, we have cops versus robbers. Yippee ki yay, which is a reference to westerns and cowboys, which was a slang form of exclamation that cowboys used to say. Yeah, and so I just love the feel of it. Me, it feels like an old western, which is why I really like it. And I think that the movie just ultimately works because of Bruce Willis. You know what I mean? He became a ma massive star for a reason. And, you know, I think that Bruce is so likable on screen. I know his career has kind of slowed down in terms of great movies. He's just kind of doing like 20 the, movies a year. To yeah, the, the, <laughs> the cheesy action movies. He's, he's getting paid. I, I think you know he, how much insurance he, on a Ferrari costs? <laughs> <laughs> he's got a big family, you know? And I think that... You know, he's definitely one of the greatest action stars, one of the greatest uh, movie stars in American history. Uh, I mean, the guy was gigantic for 20 years, and he brings so much likability, charisma, so so much cool. Bruce Willis is just, like, one of the coolest actors ever. You can't deny that. And he brings it even to a movie like Pulp Fiction. He's, like, just as cool as Vincent Vega. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And he just has that natural quality that... You know, you can't just teach actors. Yeah, like McLean when he's just lighting up a cigarette, like in the bathroom or someone. He just like he looks so cool yeah. in every shot, and every scene, everything he does. You're right. He's just got it. Whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, he's got it. He's got it, man. Bruce Willis has it, and he's had it for a long time. And you can tell he improvised a lot in this movie. Oh, for sure. And ironically, even though um, the terrorists and the robbers are German, most of them are German in this movie. Only a couple of them were actually German. And ironically, Bruce Willis is the most German out of the entire cast because he was born in Germany. So Bruce Willis was born in West Germany, and that makes him more German than the majority of the cast in this movie. And only two of the terrorists even spoke German. The rest were speaking like broken German that wasn't quite accurate. And then obviously Alan Rickman is just British, so he didn't speak German at all for real. But his accent's so good. Yeah, his accent's great, but I will say Alan Rickman's Eng American accent it is noticeable. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, well, it was his first film role, yeah. and maybe he hadn't done like an American theater or like yeah. an American actor. But, but that's what's crazy. This is Alan Rickman's first movie. Yeah, it's incredible. He was a, a big time stage actor in, in the UK for a while and well established on the stage, but he had never really pursued movies to be an actor in film. Ironically, now he's made two iconic characters in film history, but the producers of this film, they saw him in a stage play where he played the villain. I can't remember what it's called. Dangerous Liaisons. Thank you, Dangerous Liaisons. He played Vicomte de Valmont. Exactly. That was on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> but he played that character, is and it's a villain, and then the John McTiernan and one of the producers saw him, and they were like, that's our Hans Gruber. And yeah. then they approached him to star in the movie it's possibly his best role ever yeah. too i mean we all love him as snape but snape doesn't get a ton of screen time really until like the latter and like half blood prince but also he has more movies to mesh that character flesh yeah. the character out whereas this you only get like 30 minutes of screen time mm -hmm. so i think it's a, a definitely you could say it's his best role because of how much how much less screen time he has as opposed to snape it might be the best part of the movie too because the power and confidence that al rickman possesses on camera was astounding for it being his first role yes he's an accomplished stage actor at the time but acting on set for a camera is completely different than acting on stage and you kind of have to change up the way you do everything yeah, a you got bit. a film crew all around you yeah and yeah what i also love about his character and hans gruber is he doesn't speak for several minutes into the film while they're taking over the, the nakatomi that's tower that's one of the strongest sequences there's no dialogue no dialogue yeah. they're just doing it's an awesome sequence and then there's the shots of him like humming and he's I love Gruber because he's very intelligent he's also very arrogant so him and John are actually very similar which is why I think they they you could see like they could get along if they were both on the same side of the spectrum being villains or antagonists yeah. or heroes but they did grow up with completely different lives because you can tell and he says Hans Gruber grew up like in in high class UK society he went to like boarding school Perks so, of a classical yeah, education exactly so well educated <laughs> probably lived uh, more privileged life than most people on the planet and as opposed to John McClane you can you can just gather he grew up not like he grew up in the streets but he probably grew up in like you know a normal city neighborhood you know what I mean like maybe like Brooklyn or the Bronx or or Queens something like that that's my guess so yeah. completely different childhoods and upbringings but they do have similarities but I think that Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber is really fascinating because for someone as cruel ruthless and you know downright bad as he is there's a lot of like 
qualities of respect and like gentleman gentlemanliness and politeness. Like when he finally meets Nakatomi, he's he like shakes his hands like it's a pleasure to meet you and compliments his suit and stuff like that. And he has style and he appreciates style. He's like he he's like I have three of those suits myself. So he's always like showing these signs of like respecting people even though he's dominating them. I could talk about industrialization in men's fashion for day, all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but work must come first. On Al Rickman's first day of shooting, he actually filmed the scene where Hans Gruber runs into John McClane on the up on the skyscraper, and he made a jump off that ledge about three feet high. He injured himself when he landed and damaged some cartilage in his knee, so he was told by his doctor not to put any weight on that leg. And this is the first day of filming, and he had to use crutches for about a week. For the rest of the scene where Hans Gruber is standing and talking to John McClane when he's pretending to be an American and working at the tower. Mm -hmm. Alan Rickman is actually standing on only one leg the entire time, and he has a big leg brace underneath his pants. That makes sense because uh, they don't do. They did a close up of his foot landing, so it probably it was probably a stuntman's feet landing on the ground. Yeah, probably. And then they cut because he probably fell the first take, and you know that means he's not an athlete. You know, some people if they never did sports growing up, like something like three feet. It doesn't seem like that big of a drop, but it actually is. Plus, maybe you're nervous. Yeah. It's your first day of filming yeah. on a movie, yeah. you know, a big budget production. You're the villain. Maybe, I'd probably yeah. be jacked up and probably trip or something like that, too. You know, yeah. I'd probably and, mess up. It's like one of those things that, oh, of course I can jump off a three-foot ledge. It's no yeah. big deal. I've jumped off ledges thinking, like, oh, this is no problem. And then I land, I'm like, oh, my God, that hurts. I've gotten off the couch yeah. and been like, oh, my God, that hurts <laughs> for no reason. Why is my Achilles tearing right now? Because <laughs> you're 31, bro. Hey, man. Yeah, well, we, we've we all know that. That's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, true. so the one of the best shots of the movie is Hans Gruber's death, obviously. Yeah. And it's an iconic shot. It's, and it still looks great to this day. It's it's really simple, you know, blending of the two shots together of him falling. And I mean, it still looks just as good as most CGI these days. But the way they got that look of Alan Rickman's look on his face when he's falling... It's just that great look of fear and disbelief and just, like, terror. Shock. Yeah. What they did was they were hanging him, and they really did drop him onto, like, a big pillow balloon something. They didn't drop him off the skyscraper. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Alan, we have one take. He's not method. (laughs) We we got it. it. (laughs) We saved it for the last day of shooting. Good luck. But uh, oh man, was it? Were we rolling? <laughs> Crap! Get another Alan Rickman in here. <laughs> but they gave him. They were said they're going to give him a three count. So on one, two, three, we'll drop you. But they dropped him on two. So he, for a moment, he wasn't expecting to be dropped right then. So they got a realistic look of shock on his face when he's falling. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that shot. And you, when you watch it, you're like, oh yeah, he definitely wasn't expecting that. Yeah, there's a ton of great practical effects in this film. Yeah. That's why I was nominated for an Oscar for So many effects. miniatures. And not yeah. even just miniatures, but they're on top of this skyscraper. You can see mm-hmm. Los Angeles everywhere. And their interiors, they're inside the skyscraper, which is really amazing too. And it's it's actually incredible what they pulled off because there's so many real explosions, really filming on top of that skyscraper. And the fictional Nakatomi Plaza and the tower, it's actually, it was the headquarters of 20th Century Fox. I don't know if it still is, maybe. And the company charged itself rent for the use of the then unfinished building. So this is really their skyscraper that they were filming inside of and on top of. Oh, which so they didn't have so to cool. rent it. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, so I, no money. The practical effects are absolutely incredible. I think one of the best shots of the entire film is when 
Al's at the gas station. He's buying those Twinkies, and he gets out of his car, out of the gas station, and he gets the call about the Code 2 to investigate through the drive-by at Nakatomi Plaza. And he just he leaves his car, and he goes to walk out to the street to look at the plaza and the, and the skyscraper yeah. because it's right there. And you just see, like, the flashing lights that you – like, the red lights you always see on top of skyscrapers that are probably antenna and stuff like that. But then you see flashing white lights, and he's probably like, oh, it must be other things that are other there, lights, other yeah. electronics. And then we cut to the skyscraper roof, and it's a gunfight. Yeah, it's, it's great. I think it's an incredible practical effect. Like, they really just shine – they probably just shine lights up there, but it's really amazing. It's one of the best moments of the film, I think. It's that's. I'm glad you pointed that out. And I think my favorite stunt might be when they blow the roof – and then John, had, when he went right before it blows, he wraps the uh, the fire the fire hose around himself, and he jumps off the roof, and he just like Trinity in the Matrix slams into the glass. I love that shot yeah, it's so much. Sure. It's a great shot when he jumps off, and the explosions right behind him. It still holds up to this day and looks fantastic. Yeah, something else that holds up are our LG Graham Ultra Lightweight laptops, which are currently on our desks, thanks to LG. If you're watching on YouTube or checking on social media, you have seen these before, and we love these laptops. They have this incredible 16 by 10 aspect ratio, which means more vertical space, which is awesome for editing the episodes and clips, for taking notes, but most importantly, for watching films like Die Hard and your favorite holiday films this holiday season in your bedroom or in your in your living room whatever if you're gonna watch a movie on a laptop i'm telling you you get the lg's ultra lightweight gram laptops the displays are exceptional they're very light shocking light honestly they feel hollow sometimes and so we're gonna put links to our youtube bio of in our youtube bio of both the 16 inch and 17 inch lg gram ultra lightweight laptops thank you so much to lg for these incredible laptops and for sponsoring the show this year in 2022, it's right around the corner, everybody. So now it's time to finally get your act together and get yourself groomed for a new year, new you in 2022. So I recommend getting the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer from Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping your entire order today from Manscaped.com. They're also launching a ton of new products next month in January, which we can't wait to talk about. But for now, they've also launched their 2-in-1 shampoo conditioner, their body wash. We also have their weed whacker, their men's wipes, which are great, smell awesome, and tons of great stuff, including their Performance Package 4.0, which also has their Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer in there. It's got the Groomer has 7,000 RPM motor, which is very fast, wireless charger, built-in light. It's amazing. You can use it in the shower. It's skin safe. So, fellas, get on Manscaped for all your men's grooming products. Stay tuned for more to come in January. Everyone listening, if you have to get a gift for the man in your life, if you're too late on the holiday season, you might as well just get him a, a New Year's present, maybe. Get to manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off your entire order and free shipping worldwide. And when you said that they shot, I mean, yeah, they shot the exteriors with that building and also used miniatures as well. But mostly interior shots were actually shot in studio. And oh, yeah, yeah. In yeah, the background, they did a great job with the background and the windows because they're showing, they're really showing off the background of the LA landscape um, through the windows. And it looks really great, but it's not real. What they did was they created a 380-foot panoramic painting, and it, it surrounded the, the set of the building. And it's it was actually painted to be both night for night scenes and daylight for day scenes. So, like, you have, like, the beautiful warm sunset in the background, uh, background of Holly's office during that scene, and then the great night scenes with all the lights in the background. They were able – they designed the, the set piece to actually have the little lights move like they were lines of traffic. So, like, it looked like there were actually cars in the distance moving in the background. Yeah, I think there was just one 
scene or like interior location that I saw where it it looked like it had to have been really inside the skyscraper with LA around it because it's it's the set where it's like the 33rd floor where John McClane's kind of like in that unfinished floor mm-hmm. hiding out at first and then it's where also he kills Tony when the guy comes to kill him and he's just running around but you can it definitely you can see lights flickering and like street lights and stuff so that, that looked, could be yeah. that looked like that set interior i think was the only one to me that seemed like it was definitely inside but the a lot of the exteriors on top of the skyscraper that's that's real for sure yeah but I, it's like mctiernan is a great director because of his practicality like all the gunfights in this movie are real just guns real blanks they <laughs> sound real <laughs> oh real guns <laughs> that went over your head uh, <laughs> It's amazing, amazing. No one died, <laughs> but like you know, real explosions, real gunfire. It sounds legit. Like this is like up there with heat, where like the the machine gun fire, the handgun fire. It sounds like real, real weapons. Yeah, and the plot. It's easy to follow. It's simple. It's not complicated. There's not a lot of fluff. It's edited so well. They trimmed all the fat off this movie. I really like the script. Also, all the improvisation of many of the characters. Hans Gruber has some really great dialogue as well. The characters, they're all so unique, including the terrorists are all unique and have their own personalities as well. Um, Bruce, again, is awesome. But also, this this film is very funny. There's a bunch of really good lines. Argyle is a super funny character. Al has a ton of great lines and jokes. Then I think what Die Hard does so well is it's constantly like walking this tightrope of light and dark, of humor and seriousness. Uh, it, it, it can get intense in like almost you're like John McClane almost dying moments and some of the crazy stuff you'll ever see. And then just very light things too at the same time. So I think it does a great job going back and forth, which keeps you just super tuned in as an audience member. Yeah, and what I really love about the writing and the lack thereof is the lack of exposition and the lack of character backstories. Like... I love when villains, I mean, it's nice to have an empathetic villain and it's nice to see like villains that you understand like why they're doing what they're doing. But sometimes, you know, it's good just to have a villain who's just bad because they're bad. They're bad people out yeah. there. And it's just like Hans Gruber, I don't need to know his backstory. I don't need to know why he became a criminal, like what horrible thing in his past made him turn. And, you know, was he getting vengeance on John McClane or blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't need all that. I just need Hans Gruber to be a bad guy. And sometimes... That's better than anything else, you know? Yeah, I don't need to know the backstory of all these uh, criminals, of all these terrorists and robbers. I mean, they they barely touched on John's backstory, and that was enough, you know what I mean? It's more about how the characters interact with the situations and how they interact with them, each other that reveals more character detail than, you know, them going off on a one-minute monologue about, like, the biggest moment of their life when they were 13 years old. You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. It's so much better this way. A great point of that and lack of exposition is between John and Holly, Gennaro now, because, you know, he's still in New York City. He didn't follow his wife despite her getting this very successful, having this very successful career, this incredible job opportunity in Los Angeles. She took the kids and left without him because he didn't. he's too stubborn to go. That's his biggest character flaw, and he's too late to realize that until the end of the film. And, you know, Heidi had to do what's best for her and her family and take that Holly? job. What did I say? Heidi. Did I say Heidi? Yeah. I'm sorry, Holly. Holly Gennaro. But by her reveal, by being revealed to us that she's going by her maiden name now, that's all the exposition we need to know about what's going on in their relationship and their marriage, how but, it's rocky. But the way it's done is even great. It's, Just him looking up the name. Yeah, it's not him saying, telling some other character, yeah, she goes by Gennaro now. 
he's discovering it when we discover it and it's actually relative to the plot because he's trying to locate her in the building and it's a re it's just really well done action showing rather than telling we don't need 18 lines of dialogue of them going back and forth about what's wrong with their marriage we yes. know right now that like they're on the verge of divorce and they're that's, separated that's obviously. all you need that's versus, all you need versus maybe thinking that oh she just took the job and so she's here and he's visiting for the first time and obviously they're not don't have an amazing marriage but you can tell by her going by her maiden name that their marriage is almost over and i feel like modern movies like if this was made nowadays they each would have like five minute monologues about what what happened and what went wrong in the marriage and it's like we don't need to hear that you know it's enough to just know that their marriage is rocky and then we can just go on from there and it's realistic where they're st they have a fight that about a fight that they like the last fight they have which is yeah. what when you're in a relationship that's where you fight about the last thing you fight the fight about it's like kind of recurring yeah exactly and if also you don't resolve it yeah it just felt like a real marriage and it felt realistic yeah if anyone knows anyone that's gone through a divorce or anything it felt pretty authentic <laughs> how about we head on into our intermission right now and have a little fun yippee kaye yippee kaye mother effer let's start with the movie quote competition i actually have a quote from a fan that's a tv show this is from lauren smertz what's up lauren you ready i'm ready let me explain something to you about business since as usual you're turning this into something about yourself no contract means i have all the power they want me but they can't have me say it again let me explain something to you about business since as usual you're turning this into something about yourself no contract means i have all the power they want me but they can't have me i'm stumped to learn mad men oh good one i haven't seen that show in a long time good one lauren all right, and this one's for me. I ain't going to kill him. I'm just going to take a foot off of him. A man can work with one foot. <laughs> what is this? Um, oh, man. Double stumped. I don't know. Armageddon. Ooh. That's Bruce Willis's character. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good one. Good one. All right, I have two. This is from Damon Heinzman. Great fan of ours. One day, the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons on the plains of Africa. An upright ape, living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction. I feel like I watched this recently. Can you say it again? One day, the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons on the plain. No. No. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction. Oh, man. Um... I robot. <laughs> I don't know. Ex Machina. Ex Machina. Oh, I love that movie too. Oh, I can't believe I didn't get that. Yeah, I can't believe you didn't either. Oh, crap. I'm disappointed in myself. <laughs> I'm disappointed in you. I got it. <laughs> All right. Guess I, no, I got another quote. Okay. From Jason Fleming. Hope you have a big trunk because I'm putting my bike in it. <laughs> Is it true that if you don't use it, you lose it? <laughs> Four-year-old virgin. <laughs> All right, guess this movie release year. 12 Monkeys. Good movie. Terry Gilliam. It's a mind F. 1996. 95. Oh, damn it. Here's my movie release year. <clears throat> Sleepless in Seattle. 94. 93. Ah, Sorry, bud. I love that movie. So I think that it's okay, but it's not as good as You've Got Mail. 
I, I I like Sleepless in Seattle a lot. It's good, but they don't have any interaction until the last minute of the movie. That's why it's so special. Yeah, but in, in You've Got Mail, you have both actors in like 10 scenes together. That's true. Yeah, I it get just, that. It's just missing that, you know, the two actors were in scenes, like, bouncing off each other and actually speaking. <laughs> All right. Um, What's next? Biggest hater of the week. Who we have for haters? Oh, quiz, man. Oh, my bad. I skipped. So slow, sorry. slow down, I man. So slow ecstatic. it down. Slow your roll. Let me slow it down. Whiplash. How many Die Hard movies are there? One, two, three, four, five. Nice. Good job. Thanks. And I'm not counting the Die Hard battery commercial, though. That was good. <laughs> Have you seen that? No. Oh, it's great. They uh, um, Sears made a commercial for their new battery called Die Hard Battery. And then they just basically made a short film of a Die Hard movie with Bruce Willis. That's pretty cool. It's awesome. It was really How good. How long ago was it? Um, last year. Came out um, last out. Christmas season. Okay, here's my quiz. Who directed Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail? Um, hmm. Rob Reiner. Famous female director. Um, Rob Reiner's in Oh, um, Patty Seattle. Jenkins. No. No. Um, <laughs> Sleepless in Seattle. Girls are going to be disappointed, man. How famous is she? Very famous. She's made a bunch of huge um, you know, romantic films. I know. Um, Jane Campion? No. Nora Ephron. Oh. Uh... <sighs> Crap. <laughs> Sorry. You've been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that movie a lot. <laughs> I love little rom-coms. <laughs> Guilty pleasure for sure. All right, All right. I, got, I got some haters. These are good ones. So I'm going to go through them fast because there's a bunch. <laughs> there's a bunch. But on my episode of the my top 100 episode, we got a bunch of great comments. So this is people referring to my list of movies, not being happy with it. Joel Quigley wrote, no Spy Kids 3D, unsubscribed. <laughs> um, Not Dawson... Endgame is the greatest piece of cinema since Avengers Infinity War. Unsubscribe. <laughs> Tristan Condy, this podcast sucks. All these guys do is provide me with hours of entertainment and a bunch of knowledge in the world of film. Unsubscribe. <laughs> Devilton Weed, can't believe you don't have or- Wolverine Origins in your top 10. <laughs> Big Fat Liar getting snubbed by Bobby Law. <laughs> and then... Kyle's Taylor, 27, quotations, no Guardians of the Galaxy, quote, Empire. <laughs> Empire Magazine. <laughs> oh, and Amanda Grace, no Twilight? Unsubscribe. Sorry, Amanda. All right, we have a couple of really, really sweet five-star reviews for our supporters of the week. The first one is Jay Gumi. Man, these guys are doing movie gods work. I struggle to find a movie podcast as great as this one. I am so glad I found it. Engaging conversation between these two brothers and great chemistry amplifies my love for film and gets me through my days. Keep working hard, guys, or I will unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> I love how people who must like see the show and like reviews are like, why are people unsubscribing? <laughs> they just don't get the inside joke yet. <laughs> wow, why? Like we get that people write that all the time, and yeah, sometimes people are like, why are you going to unsubscribe? They're like I'm just joking. <laughs> are the fake haters? Yeah. This is from Legit X Italian 15. Easily my favorite podcast. I started watching late last year from TikTok, and since then I watched pretty much every episode. I never knew I needed a movie podcast until I heard theirs. They really helped me get through the day, especially when I'm working there. Also really funny, and they know what they're talking about. They're the best podcast out right now. 
and also subscribing to their Patreon is so worth it. Oh, thanks so much for coming to thanks, Patreon. Pal. You're once legit. You, once you start watching them, you will never be able to turn away. Love y'all, and thank you for being so awesome. Thank you for being so awesome. That Thanks, was really pal. sweet. Appreciate it. On this day in film history, today is December 23rd. In 1971, Dirty Harry was released. In 1987, Good Morning Vietnam was released. In 1992, Scent of a Woman was released. In 1970, 1997, As Good As It Gets is released. Nice. In 2009, Up In The Air is released, which somehow beat uh, Inglorious Bastards <laughs> yeah. Bass for screenplay. Yeah. Um, in 2016, Nocturnal Animals was released. And happy birthday to Stranger Things himself, Finn Wolfhard. Nice. My streaming recommendation is The Blair Witch Project. Ooh. Let's get spooky. Good one. I have Palm Springs on Hulu. I watched it last night. It was really good. Good choice. And the Godfather tier patron of this episode is Sarai Rogers. Thank you so much, Sarai, for being a, such a huge fan of the show. You're an OG. You've been here forever. We really appreciate all your support on social media, interacting with us, sharing your comments, and especially be being a patron for several, several months over the last year, year and a half. All right, let's get back into Die Hard. With Where are we going to lead off? Let's see. Want to get into... Uh... Actually, I know how to get. I know how to lead off. Right. So, this film puts John McClane in a bunch of life-threatening <laughs> situations. What would you say is the scariest life-threatening situation that John McClane is in in this film? If it was you, if it was me, I honestly think the scariest moment for John McClane is the initial moment of the terrorists invading the party. And what makes John such a great character? First of all, I love how like. We don't, he's not like an ex-Special Forces or like a Navy SEAL. He's just or, a cop. He's just a cop. He, just has, and he also has great instincts, and he, he acts when he needs to act. So he, he makes the right decisions, but he doesn't have to be like ex-military, you know what I mean, which is always the way it is now. But I think the moment when the terrorists invade the party, and I, just picture yourself, you're in a room. You're in that room. You, you you just took your shoes off and you're relaxing. You just cleaned up after the flight. And then you're walking also, on your knuckles yeah, with toes. Exactly. And then you hear machine gun fire in the next room over. And you're looking through the crack of the door and there are terrorists invading the party and coming to your approaching the hallway where your door is. I think that's the scariest moment for John McClane's character. Um, I think that's the scariest moment for me where I would be because all the other parts of the movie, generally he's by himself. But like that's the moment where if John McClane doesn't act in that moment, he's dead. True. And I think he, it's, it's a great moment of showing well, I mean, how- he might not be dead, but he might, he just, the, they're all probably, well, they're all dead because they're gonna blow them all up anyways. Yeah, but I mean, two guys with machine guns would've walked in, one of them would've hit him, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I don't think he would've gotten out of that situation. So John McClane acting in that moment, right when that terrorist turns around to look at the naked woman, if he didn't run away right there down the hall to the stairwell, He'd be toast. They'd all be dead. They yeah. wouldn't have shot him right there. That he would. They would have just brought him to the other. He had a gun in his hand. They would have shot him. Well, if he if they were coming to the door, maybe if he wanted a gunfight. Yeah, he he was holding a gun. They would have shot him. Yeah, you're probably right. He'd be dead. You're probably right. If he, if he didn't act in that moment, they'd all be dead. Yeah, because they were gonna blow all the terrorists up. I mean, all, they were gonna blow a bunch of them up. They weren't all gonna get on the helicopter probably. Well, no, I'm just saying in that moment. No, I know, but yeah. also in addition to yeah. if he doesn't escape, yeah, yeah. then they're yeah. all going to Everyone die. in the party would have died. Probably. Yeah. Um, there are a couple others, I think. So I think the shootout on the rooftop is terrifying because, yeah. again, he's a, he's a cop. He's not ex-military. He probably doesn't have experience using heavy mach uh, machine guns. These or, guys are, and like, yeah. What is he using, like an MR3 rifle or, or an M3? or an, Who knows what kind of guns they're using, but I, he doesn't seem to be experienced with them, even though the terrorists are terrible shots. Um, <laughs> well, they're movie villains. I, I think the He fire, does get hit once, though, yeah, he does in get the shoulder. Shot at the end. 
Um, the fire hose scene that you talked about earlier when oh, yeah. he jumps off the roof with the fire hose after the, the, the attack helicopter comes around to shoot him, the FBI guys, to blow him up. And he jumps off the roof with tying himself with a fire hose. And then he survives by getting inside that room. But then the fire hose is so heavy, it's starting to drag him down. It's dragging him off the building. And he has to quickly untie himself from the fire hose. I think that's also an incredibly scary life-threatening situation. And you've seen that copied multiple times yeah. since then. But I think the number one for me when I watch this movie, the scariest situation <laughs> he's ever been in is the elevator shaft leading to the air duct oh, system. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is when... Um, he's being chased by the terrorists off the roof, and then he makes it inside, like the areas that he's he's knows already that he's been walking through and, and um, kind of hiding out in and, and planning his his attacks and everything. And then um, they're coming in after him. He gets through that fan, and then he goes into the elevator shaft opening, which he like drops something, and it takes like ten seconds to hear it crash. And then he's just like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna <laughs> die!" <laughs> and then he um slides through the opening into the air duct using his gun and the strap attached to it as a rope to hang down to hold him up. And then he has to somehow grab one of the openings of the other air ducts on a random floor, which I think is just the most terrifying thing that you could ever put your, in a situation you put yourself in. You're, you're putting your entire life on a strap of this gun, hoping it doesn't break and you fall down to your death. Yeah, that's definitely a highlight of the movie. It's it's. I think that's a great scene for and sure. And they actually had the stunt guy who did that actually, it's not like, he's not like 40 feet up, in, I mean 400 <laughs> feet up in the air, but he actually did fall and caught himself on the and he caught himself on the wrong duct and vent, but they used it and kept that take. And that's where he's supposed to grab the one below him, but he falls two down mm -hmm. and grabs a hold of it. And that was actually an accident which they kept on. And then so the air duct, I think, just in general, also the claustrophobia involved with that. The, like I would be terrified just going through that. Even though he's John McClane is just so cool, he's like, "Oh, so this is what it feels like to be a TV dinner." <laughs> like he's so cool about it. I'd be freaking out if I was inside an air duct. That's the most iconic shot of the movie. Yeah, of uh, Bruce of uh, Bruce Willis inside the air duct with the lighter. Although, so the thing with air ducts, air ducts inside of them, um, the nails when they nail air ducts and piece them together, they're put together through with little nails. The nails are sticking out inside of the air duct. So if you actually did crawl through air ducts, you'd be like crawling on top of little nails. So that's what reality would be like. He would, there would be blood everywhere. <laughs> also, he wouldn't have made that jump. Yeah, yeah, in no. reality, he would have fallen to his death. <laughs> <laughs> Come well, on to the coast. We'll get together. Yeah, have a few laughs. Yeah. <laughs> but whenever I see air duct scenes, I'm like, where are the nails? <laughs> <laughs> Another really intense life-threatening situation for John McClane is, well, obviously he's in multiple shootouts, but I think the one with the glass, when Hans Gruber tells... Um, What's his name? Carl. Carl to shoot shoot the glass. Shoot the glass. And then he has to run through the glass. That's a terrifying sequence. And then he gets the glass in his feet, which is an iconic part of this character, the bloody glass feet. And when John McClane runs through the glass shards in his bare feet after Hans and his men shoot out the glass partitions in the computer room, Bruce Willis is actually wearing special rubber shoes designed to look like his own bare feet. One can see this if they look closely enough at his feet, which appear quite unnaturally large in some of these crucial barefoot scenes. So like hobbit feet. Yeah, and so <laughs> the concept of him running around this building without shoes is really interesting, and it obviously makes him a vulnerable character, which I really like. We like the vulnerability of, of John McClane. That's why he's very relatable. But I do think there's a foot loophole in this film where he kills Tony the terrorist. And the terrorists in this film are obviously, many of them were cast because of being six foot six and giant domineering and intense mm -hmm. bodies and people. Just and blonde. Like, yeah, yeah, and looking like they're in like basis of rock bands in Sweden <laughs> or something like that, the hair and everything. But they're, most of them are massive. They're cast like that on purpose. And he kills the first one, Tony, and he tries to put on his shoes 
and he's like <laughs> nine million terrorists in the world. I gotta get. I gotta kill the one with shoot with feet smaller than my sister's. And if you look at the the terrorist in the chair, his feet are massive. They are enormous. He's like size seventeen. There's shoes. no way that guy has small feet. His bare, yeah. f- you can see his bare feet as he's strapped to the chair. And then Bruce Willis is probably like a size eight or nine. <laughs> it's like there's no way that his feet don't fit those shoes. It's just a little loophole that oh, it's the one thing that bugs me about this movie. It's the one plot hole. It's, a, it's it. definitely a plot hole. Yeah. It's like, dude, that guy's shoes should be too big for you, not too small. <laughs> I love that you pointed it out last time. It always, I always point it out to myself. But the you know the action. This is so realistic. And I and like I said, the you know the gunfighting is so great, and they actually did use real blanks in during that scene where I can't remember that terrorist name, but he's chasing McLean on top of the table, and he's like running across the table while McLean's sliding underneath the table. When when McLean shoots him finally from below and just like blows up his legs and body, it's great. But um, because he fired the gun so close to his face, Bruce Willis. Um, suffered hearing loss in his left ear, and he lost two thirds of his hearing in the left ear. Wow! Yeah, for the rest of his life. The rest of his life. I, that makes sense. It's like literally right next to his face. Yeah, he's like firing it like. Doo, 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 it's a great doo. shot, though. Yeah. It's one of my favorite shots. He, what, he has so many great lines yeah. in this movie. It's he, most of it's improvised. It's and amazing. He murders every single one of them. That's why this is one of the greatest action movies of all time. It's just the deliverability of his one-liners. Yeah, I love the one-liners in this. It's like up there with Arnold has great one-liners as well. But I mean, in general, the characters are so good. Even even the terrorists. So like, I think a great example is Carl, who is Gruber's basically second in command. We get his characterization right away when his brother is trying to like take out the the comm systems and and doing all the wiring and everything, and then he comes in with the chainsaw. And it just shows like the difference in characters between those two two people, even though they're terrorists. Like, why do we have to? Why characterize them? Because it makes it more interesting. One's the nerd with the glasses, and the other <laughs> and one's, one's the the, the jock, the blunt one. He's just like, I'm just gonna t- cut this off with a chainsaw. Yeah, yeah. You better hope, better hope you're connected in time. I like the hacker guy too. He's yeah. really funny. So Theo, yeah, Theo, who, he's an awesome character as well. He's yeah. super funny. He's played by Clarence Gilliard. He's Goober's tech specialist. Uh, clearly very well educated. He's, he's a lot similar to, he's probably the most similar to Gruber, you know, probably mm-hmm. in classical education, really, really great computer hacker. He can hack into the system. But I love how the film constantly insinuates, like he's like, there are six locks which I can bypass, but you know the seventh one can't be cut locally, which I think a lot, when you watch, you're like, what does that even mean? And yeah. Hans Gruber's like, don't worry, it's part of the plan. Uh, uh, for me, I'm like, you don't think Theo already knew that the, the seventh thing could be have could be done by, by cutting from the city? I think he knew, but he just wanted to like make sure like, you know this is the situation, right? Like, I can't do it. I just got to double check Hans with you. Hans is just very theatrical. Before we go through with it. Yeah, but yeah. the plan is really good because Hans knows that at some point the, the police and FBI are going to be involved at some point. And when John McClane messes up the timeline of their plot and their plans, it doesn't ruin their plan. It just expedites and brings the police in a little earlier than they wanted to but it is really the detonators once John McClane gets a hold and that really puts a, an anchor in their plans and it's just like the third one which I, I mean I love the third one and it, it takes the same route for the terrorists where you know they use terrorists terrorism as a way of def, um, disguising the fact that they're committing a robbery mm-hmm. um, and I just really love how that setup is done in the third one as well it's like the second one didn't really work that well but the third one, I think they understood, like, what made the first Die Hard so good? All right, let's just duplicate that and just make it a new story. Instead of a new place, have some new characters and expand the scope of it. And I think it really worked out for a sequel. Yeah, and I think Holly's also a great character played by Bonnie Bedelia. She was chosen by Bruce Willis to portray Holly Gennaro McLean after he saw her performance in Heart Like a Wheel, which came out in 1983. Holly's going by her maiden name now. They're almost, you could say, about to be divorced. She took the kids with her. She 
is a very smart, capable person. She's also very courageous and decisive in this film when dealing with Hans Gruber after he takes out um, Takagi. And instead of doing, like, the damsel in distress, she's a very strong character. You know, she, she stands up to Hans Gruber multiple times in the film. Takagi's death is crazy. There's it's, so much You blood. don't expect it to happen. Yeah, because yeah. you've seen all the movies where it's like, they're going to do the count of three, and then, you know, something's going to happen. But he really just blows them away. It's insane. Even Takagi doesn't think he's going to do it. Played by J uh, James Chigeta. He's like, I, I don't know the password. I guess you're just going to have to kill me. He's like smiling. <laughs> he's like, okay, I will. Peace. We'll do, we'll do it the hard Peace way. Peace out. So it's, it's pretty shocking when you see, like... You need to see that so you know that Hans Gruber means business. Yeah, we're not messing around. Yeah. I'm going to... I'll kill everyone here if yeah. I have to to get inside that vault. That's what makes Hans such a great character. He can be so polite and so professional... But then he could just snap and, like, kill you without hesitation. But also it shows, like, the arrogance of probably you could say all powerful people and yeah. powerful men. Where Tagagi, he knows that they're here for the vault now. He knows he wants the $650 million in non-negotiable non bearer bonds I have downstairs. But then he's not going to kill me. So, like, yeah, go ahead and shoot me, guy. Good Boom, luck. Dead. So even he doesn't expect it. Exactly. That's what makes a great villain. And then Hart Bachner as Harry Ellis is another really great, interesting character. He's a little bit of a wild card. He adds that that cocaine sleaziness to it. <laughs> that, Hans, that, that Bubby. I'm your white knight. <laughs> I can bring him to you. I can bring him to you. John, how can you say that after all these years? <laughs> I love when um, when John walks into his office to Holly's office for the first time, and he's uh, sniffing coke on the on the desk, and he has to like wipe it away. And then he's like, "You missed some." <laughs> Takagi's like, "This is uh, Holly's wife. He's a policeman." <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like as long as you do your job well, it doesn't really matter what's going on. Yeah, I think it's that's business. That's corporate world yeah, in general. It's like, yeah, if you if you, if you make, make us, us money, money <laughs> it's all whatever good. You want. Yeah. It's all good to us. And then I think there's um, the character. Oh, of course, Al. Yeah. Played by Al Powell, played by uh, Reginald Vell Johnson, a great character. Him and him and um, John are like the emotional heartbeat of the film. Obviously, the reunion of John and his wife is really touching, and we eventually get that at the end of the film. But but it's nothing on the love story between him and it Al. It really is. It's a love story between the two of them. You're right. It's like a it's an action rom com between them. It's really heartwarming sometimes, and you know they they get very personal because you, I think John especially. He needs someone to talk to, to to kind of vent and get things off his chest because he could die any minute. I was like, baby, just tell me. Just, tell, <laughs> just keep talking. I, I got this. Oh, you want to tell your wife something? What, what, what do you want to tell me? <laughs> and they joke around, and they're very similar. And, you know, you learn backstory on them both. You learn the backstory about Al where he accidentally shot a kid, and he's kind of dealing with that uh, emotionally going forwards and how he never wants to draw his gun out again, which he has to in order to save the day at the end of the film. Redemption. And John's using Al as a vehicle to kind of do therapy on himself about all the things that he's done wrong in his marriage and how, you know, I've, I've, she's heard me say, I love you a thousand times, but she's never heard me say, I saw, I'm sorry. And I just want you to, if, if I don't make it, I need you to tell these things to my wife. So it's sort of him analyzing himself and coming to terms with the mistakes he's made. And then we also get like the great, like ridiculous FBI stuff. And Dwayne Robinson is just so, so annoying. And oh, yeah, by, the by deputy Paul chief marshal, no, LAPD uh, deputy chief. Yeah. It, he's, he's just like the worst character. He's ever. so annoying. And then he has, but in the third act of the film, everything he says is just a great one line yeah. joke. It's pretty funny. He's like, I guess we're going to need some more of those FBI guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but at first he's like, he, he's, he'll say anything to make it seem like it's not really a terrorist attack. So incompetent. Yeah. He's like, what about the guy who came off the roof? Could have been just some depressed stockbroker. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then when the FBI show up, it's like, this is this is my crime scene. Not anymore. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, in movies, the FBI is portrayed in a certain way. 
But realistically, you know, law enforcement authorities, they work together in a collaborative way nowadays. And it, it, they really do just, they are like a big team. Especially post 9 11. Yeah, exactly. That was the biggest problem with 9 11 yeah. no one talked to each other. Exactly. Yeah, together. nobody shared information. But nowadays, they, they have much better relationships. I also love Argyle, who's John's limousine driver, played by Devereaux White, who this is his first day in the job and he's definitely getting fired. He, <laughs> he, not only is he lying, he says, Hey, baby, my boss thinks I'm on my way to Vegas yeah, right it's now. Terrible. And he's stuck inside this building, and then he crashes into that ambulance. So he's just showing up back to work with this fake ambulance. I mean, this destroyed ambulance. I and mean, he, limo. And he asks John what he's supposed to do. It's like drive. <laughs> <laughs> just drive. Just drive, man. But we get a great character moment for John early on when he sits up front. He's like, I've never been in a limousine. He's yeah. like, he's like, all right, I'll sit up front, I guess. <laughs> I love that. But Argyle's super fun. Ton of great comedic moments, especially like the cuts of like when the stuff's going on behind him. He's blasting music with the teddy bear on the phone with his girl super funny character and then he even helps out by crashing into the theo when he's uh trying to use the ambulance taking theo out and that was a great plan by by the criminals to like escape an emergency vehicle the entire plan is very smart and really that's like the ocean's 11 ending but it's also hans is so intelligent but he's also as arrogant as he is intelligent which is his biggest weakness arrogance is definitely his biggest flaw and now for all you movie lovers the holiday season is here it's time to get a gift for that movie lover in your life and the perfect gift is a movie poster of their favorite movie or TV show. Head on over to movieposters.com and use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, pretty much every film and television show imaginable. They have it in their arsenal. Movieposters.com has everything you need for your poster needs. Head on over there and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. I think one of my favorite parts of the film, and I think what makes it work so well, is the interactions between Hans and John. How at first it starts off just all on the walkie-talkie talking. They don't know who each other are. And then the first time they meet is when Hans is trying to go check the explosives on the on the roof of the skyscraper to make sure that they're still intact and that they'll still go off. And he's all they're also looking for the detonators, which which John has in the explosives. But he actually he accidentally stumbles upon John up there, and you could say like the floor below the roof. And he he's very intelligent and smart and sharp and, and quick. And he he probably maybe he. He probably maybe planned the situation that, like, I'm going to have to impersonate an employee maybe or something like that. Or maybe he saw He knows that everything. He knows everything about yeah. the building and, and the staff because he I – don't, I don't know if he just looked at the the employee chart on the wall and picked out a name. But I'm guessing he knew them all beforehand. I'm guessing from research he knows everyone that works there because you never know when that could come up. And if I'm going to have to impersonate somebody, whether – if the police come in, I'm going to pretend I'm Paul Clay or William Bill Clay. Bill Clay. Clay. Bill, Bill Clay. Clay. And then William Clay's up there on the board. So he's really intelligent. He's – improvises on his feet and pretends to be American and switches up his accent, which I think is pretty solid. He does a pretty good job. But then, and then they go back to now that they know what each other's look like and, and uh, Hans gets the upper hand and his guys come and gets the detonators and the explosives back. So they're back in business and everything. And then they, they don't meet again until the final duel at the end of the film. So they only have two scenes together face to face, which is awesome. And that, that final duel is really epic. And John outsmarts him and tricks him and, Shoots him with the gun taped to the back of his, uh, uh, taped to his back with a duct tape. And, Hans. <laughs> we have some. Jimmy's been saying that all week. We have a, we have a couple <laughs> sketches coming out soon, and I played John McClane. It's gonna be pretty good. All, all week you've just been walking into the house like Hans. <laughs> and then when Hans finds out that John is Holly's husband, he flips up the photo. 
He's like, oh, now I have, a, I have a bargaining chip now. I'm going to take Mrs. McClane with me. Yeah, I love the scene when he tr when John tricks Hans because even though Hans is a highly intelligent person, you know, John McClane is street smart. He, not, he might not be sophisticated or well-educated, but he's he knows people, and he's not an idiot. He's like, what do you think? I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Give you a go with bullets. <laughs> oh, no bullets. What do you think? I'm stupid. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's yeah, because so he shows up with the empty – he shows up with the gun with, with the machine gun that has no bullets. He's like, they're going to make me drop this gun, but they don't know I'm going to have one taped to the back. Exactly. So, so he's, he's very super, smart. Super clever. Yeah, he's, he's great. What do you think? I'm stupid. <laughs> so the problem – the reason why this movie works so well in – you know, Die Hard with a Vengeance works really well too, but um, this movie's so small, and the small scope really helps. Whereas Die Hard with a Vengeance has a really big scope, but it's still not like end of the world stakes. You know, it's still just set inside New York City. But the reason why the other two sequels just don't work is because it got too big. What Live Free or Die Hard, and the other yeah, one? Yeah, and then um, you and, mean when he good crashes day... a car into a helicopter? Yeah, and then a, a jet. Yeah, and then uh, a Good Day to Die Hard in Russia. This nuclear w w end of the world, they, they stop a nuclear, like, uh, holocaust. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's too big. The stakes can't be that big. It's, it's not Mission Impossible. Yeah, it's not Mission Impossible. He's not Superman. He's not Iron Man. McClane in Die Hard works when it's a more contained story. And that's why this is the best one. This is why Die Hard with a Vengeance is the second best one. The second, second one, it's okay. But I mean, they got way too big in the sequels. And Plus, Sam L in the third one. Yeah, Sam's great in it. Yeah, and then um, what's his name? Alfred, Jeremy Irons. Yeah, Jeremy Irons. Yeah, excellent other characters, and they were just missing so much from the last two sequels that came out. Yeah, it's grounded. Even though yeah. the explosions all over the city, it's it's clever, mm -hmm. and you know, it's, it's a great script. They're just masking a robbery. Yeah. That's Same actually kind of it's actually a script that was called Simon Says that the studio had purchased years earlier, and they were trying to get it off the ground, and then they're like, let's turn this into a diehard movie. And so they just took that screenplay, changed the character names, and made it John McClane the lead character, and that's how that story came out. Yeah, but I love Die Hard because it ends up being a redemption, a redemption story. He reunites with his wife, and <laughs> but I think with the Die Hard redemption stories, the next movie he's always just like he screwed things he up. up again. <laughs> he always screws everything up <laughs> because it's, that's his character. That's what he does. He's stubborn as hell. He ruined the marriage. He just can't. He just can't hold his tongue. Yeah, like he flew all the way to L.A. He ironically gets invited to this party by accident where he saves the day. Him and Holly are in that room where he's washing up. And it's like, you, he could just bite his tongue and he can stay with the kids. She invited me over. I'll just shut the hell up about the last name thing. We could talk about it some other time. But no, I can't hold my tongue in. I'm John McClane. Oh, so you, you changed your last name. You still love me, huh? Oh, are we still married? I didn't know. Like, shut the hell up, John. He, she invited you over. Now you're going to have to go to Pomona. I'm going to go to Ramona. Pomona? Oh, you'll be in car half the time. He's too disagreeable, man. He's very disagreeable. He's way too disagreeable. <laughs> he's he's, he's impossible to be married to. Exactly. Yeah, impossible. <laughs> I don't blame her. I don't blame Holly for leaving. I mean, you got to take that great job because yeah. you're much more successful than him and you're you're very intelligent, but I don't blame you for leaving John McClane in New York. <laughs> <laughs> he's not husband material. I, I would do the same he's thing. He's just not husband he's material. He's probably a great dad, but like a, a probably a terrible husband. He's a great dad you see on the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go to the ball game. He smells like cigarettes and coffee. <laughs> Hungover. 
<laughs> you meet his different girlfriend every two weeks. Uh, <laughs> Holly. <laughs> what kind of guy is married to someone for 10 years and never says, I so- I'm sorry? Yeah, but- right? Even if, like, you break a glass, you can't just be like, oh, I'm sorry I broke the glass. But, like, I broke the glass, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what a douchebag. <laughs> She's heard me say I love you a thousand times. She's never heard me say, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not once, John. Jeez. Why are you taking him back, Holly? Destined to be alone forever. <laughs> but he's great at killing bad guys. He really is. <laughs> really good. Oh, man. I love Die Hard so much. It's amazing. It's the best. Yeah. So I think in terms of trivia, I just hit it all inside the episode for everything I've got. Yeah, you sneaked it in there, man. Yeah, is there anything else you want to talk about? And next, we want to do a very special shout-out to our friend Lauren Smertz's class, the theater club at Glen Hills Middle School. They are brand-new fans of our show, and we appreciate their support. All right, sweet. Well, thanks, everybody, for enjoying this holiday episode on Die Hard, which we adore so much. Stay tuned for this week. we got a bunch of awesome episodes coming with some MCU stuff leading up to Spider-Man No Way Home. Plus, James is my greatest 100 films of all-time list happening on Tuesday. It's just going to be me by myself in the microphone. <laughs> it's going to be a good time. We don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> anything could happen. Anything, anything could happen. Straight up wild card over here. So just stay tuned for that on Tuesday. <laughs> Everybody have a great, great weekend. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Everything that's going on. Hope you have a wonderful time with your family and friends. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to subscribe if you're new. Hit the like button. Leave a comment. Find us on all audio streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. Find us on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to check out one of these other videos right here for more content on our favorite films and breaking down all kinds of movie content. Thanks so much.